Oh, well, I'm glad that we're here too. Thank you. <laughs> well, it is good to be here. And, um, you know, this, this was quite a challenge to get here because we've tried to schedule times in the past when we're traveling different places and it's just never worked out. We got here on a Wednesday a while back and that was great. We had a great time then. Uh, so I'm just glad we were able to, to work out the schedule and to have a kind of a little weekend mini conference. And I had uh, talked to Brother Rick about different subjects and one of them was Romans 8 and so he kind of perked up a little and said, that sounds good, let's do that. And so uh, you got him to blame whether you enjoy it or get your toes stepped on. One way or the other, we'll try not to do that though. We're going to be continuing, and, and Lord willing, finishing up Romans chapter 8 in this session. And so I would invite you to have your Bibles ready. And uh, I just wanted to make a note. I see up there, uh, it says, Pastor of Grace Community Church. I am one of the speaking pastors there. Uh, they too have, uh, they have about four elders now that preach. And so uh, they, they uh, fill in and actually... Uh, until I started going there a couple years ago, they were handling the whole thing themselves and uh, doing a good job as well. So it is good to have those who can, uh, can step in and preach the word of God. All right. Well, we've prayed a lot, but let's just pray once more, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your word, and we look to you now for understanding, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we'll know the hope of our calling, and just the, the wonderful glory of your grace, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Our subject this morning we are calling On Trial in Heaven's Court. We stopped off in our Sunday school class today at verse 28, and I know most of you could quote it. When we were doing the mic check last night, Brother Rick said, quote Romans 8:28. So uh, I had it on fresh on my mind. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And with this transition from what Paul has been talking about in Romans chapter 8, he's setting us up for a series of questions to help us really think about what he has been saying and to really process it in our minds. And the way that the apostle is going to do this is he's going to describe what very well could be called a courtroom scene. How many of you have ever attended a, a court hearing of some kind? All right, I won't ask you which side of the docket you were on or anything like that. Uh, that's not the point. But we're familiar with how it works, right? You've got a judge, obviously, sitting at the bench. Uh, generally speaking, you have a prosecuting attorney, you have a defense attorney, you have witnesses, and all of these are working together to come to a conclusion. 
And it's interesting that we recognize a lot of the things we're going to be seeing here as somewhat familiar because we are familiar with our American court system. But the reason that it seems familiar to us is because our founders actually looked to the Word of God for a lot of the ways that they set up our government. And they realized that the Bible has established this whole system of uh, a judge and of witnesses and of those who would defend someone in, in a courtroom setting. So we're going to see uh, a lot of similarities to what we have observed in our courtroom system. The first thing that the Apostle Paul is going to address is the first conclusion that he reaches based on what he has been teaching up to this point. And we find that in verse 31. And that is, for the believer, there is no effective opposition. For the believer, there is no effective opposition. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? Now, as I've mentioned all along this weekend, both last night and in Sunday school, we're jumping into the middle of something. And so when Paul says, what shall we say to these things, we might well ask, well, what things? What is he been talking about? Well, if you know the book of Romans, you know that he's been talking about the problem of sin in the first three chapters. He's talked extensively about God's solution to sin through the blood of Christ and how we are justified by faith. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. So he's been explaining all of these wonderful truths that we understand from that portion of the book of Romans. And now he's asking the question, well, what do we say to these things? And, and what do we say to the things in the near context? The suffering that he has addressed in the previous verses. The things we face as believers sometimes where we wonder, well, where's God? Is God listening to me? And he has assured us that the Spirit helps our infirmities in verse 26. For we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So in light of what God has done to provide for our salvation, in light of what God has done when we're in a time of suffering, what do we say to these things? And in verse 31, he says this, If God be for us, who can be against us? That is the first conclusion he reaches. And he asks it in a question form. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now just try to visualize the scene that Paul is painting here. Imagine yourself in that courtroom of heaven. You're standing before the judge who is God the Father himself. On one hand, you have the devil trying to accuse you. And doesn't God call Satan the accuser of the brethren? And does Satan have any accusations, do you suppose, towards us? Yeah, I think he probably does. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. And there we are before the judge of the universe in the court of heaven. And what does Paul have to say about this? If God be for us, who can stand against us? Who can be against us? Think about this. We're in heaven's court, and the judge is on our side. 
You ever thought about that? Now, I know that doesn't sound very kosher, does it, when it comes to a court of law. The judge is on your side. But we're in God's courtroom. And we've just learned in Romans chapter 8 that we are God's children. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we're going to talk about him a little bit later as well. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can be against us? Who can be against us when the judge is on our side? And it's a righteous thing that he's on our side. And Paul's going to explain why he's on our side. You see, he's already told us in verse 30, whom he called them, he also justified. You know what that means? It means to be declared righteous. You see, the judge of the universe, if you are a child of God, if you've placed your faith in Christ by believing the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, if you have trusted Christ, you've already been adjudicated. Did you know that? God has already settled the matter. You are already declared righteous with the very righteousness of Christ because you are now in him through faith in his blood. And that's why it says, if God be for us. God is for us. And I just love that image. You know, so many times we have the image of God portrayed by whoever, that God is an angry God, and that he's just waiting for you to slip up so he can get you. I really don't believe that's the heart of God. Now, has God punished people throughout Scripture? Oh, yeah, he's had to punish people time and time and time again. But, you know, we're living in the dispensation of the grace of God. God has suspended judgment for the time being. Did you know that the whole purpose of the dispensation of grace, now there's many purposes, but one of the major purposes is a postponement of the tribulation period. God is postponing his wrath that he will someday pour out upon this earth for a seven-year period that will be worse than any time that's ever been or ever will be. We're living in the dispensation of grace. God is for us. Glory in that principle. <laughs> Rest in that truth. God is on your side. So that's the first conclusion that the apostle brings. The second conclusion he comes to, we find in verse number 32. Or verse 30, uh, I'm going to finish verse 32 and then we'll go to verse 33. He says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And really what he's doing is he's, he's basing his point that God will come through with salvation because he's already given us the greatest thing that he ever had. What's the greatest thing God had to give? His own son. And so really the logic that Paul is laying out for us is, how do we know God's going to come through with the salvation that he's promised to us? Because he's already given us something that's even greater than our salvation. He's given us his own son. So if he gave us his greatest thing, is it so much to believe that he will come through with something else as well? And of course the answer is, of course he'll come through with what he has already promised. Now, the second conclusion that Paul comes to is in verse 33, and that is, for the believer, there is no valid accusation. 
Again, verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now, before we examine what he has said here, I want to just talk a little bit about what he means by God's elect. And um, Brother Rick was leaning over, kind of whispering something to me, and I was having a hard time hearing him there too, but it was something about uh, Calvinism and uh, election and something like that. So you, you know what Brother Rick believes. <clears throat> and I believe the same thing, by the way. Um, election is not God's choice of who he's going to save. God's e election is God's choice of those who believe to become his servants. And predestination isn't God determining in advance who is going to be saved. Predestination is God already determining his plans for those who become believers. And God has already planned that we are going to be, look at it again in verse 29, uh, for whom he did foreknow, he did also, also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. God's ultimate plan for you is to be conformed to the image of his son. If you're saved, it's going to happen sooner or later. I say the sooner the better. Is it possible to be conformed to the image of his son now? Yeah, and that's the whole point of the suffering that he's talked about. The Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures, and I have, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this. The scripture says he learned obedience through what? Through the things he suffered. The Lord Jesus Christ had to learn something? Well, as a human being, he experienced something new that he hadn't experienced before. Do you ever stop and think about that? The Lord Jesus Christ took on, as we saw earlier in Romans, the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful flesh, but the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on a human body, and he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Well, if it took that for Christ to learn obedience, what do you think it takes for us to learn obedience? same thing. That's what God has predetermined. Now, if you don't manage to learn to be according to God's image, the image of Christ, through your sufferings in this life, guess what? You'll be conformed to the image of his son in eternity. It's just going, it's been predetermined, predestinated. So, we get back down to verse 33. When he's talking about the elect, he's talking about those who have trusted Christ. And he's saying, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And again, there would be some who could lay something to the charge of God's elect. Certainly the accuser of the brethren. There's human beings that will lay things to the charge of God's elect. But then he says in verse 33, it is God that justifieth. Now I want to give you a little, little lesson in the, uh, the text here. How many of you know what it means when the words are italicized in the Bible? You think you know what that means, okay? It means they're not in the original text. Now, sometimes they're very helpful, and the translators are simply giving us words that help us sort of fill out a meaning. Sometimes I think they distract a little bit, and I think here's one of the times. Now, another thing to realize is that Paul is asking a series of questions here, and the original text didn't have punctuation like we have now. And so the translators have added the question marks. I personally believe that in verse 33, 
and, and really through the whole text, he's asking a series of questions. And so just listen to it that way. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God that justifieth? You see, what he's asking is, would, this, would the very God who's already adjudicated your case, he's already declared you righteous, would he turn around now and bring a charge against you? Yes or no? No. And the answer is, would God lay anything to your charge? No. Well, if God isn't laying anything to your charge, does it really matter what anyone else lays to your charge? No. Because he's the one that matters, isn't he? And he's not laying anything to your charge. And the reason he's not laying anything to your charge is because he's already justified the believer. He's already declared you righteous. In verse 34, he comes to a third conclusion. For the believer, there is no condemnation. Again, read it as a question. He says, who is he that condemneth? Christ, that died, yea, rather, that was, is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Again, I believe he's asking a question. Who is he that condemneth? Well, if there would be anyone who would have the right to condemn us, it would be Christ. Why? Because he too came into this world as a human being, but contrary to our experience, he never sinned. What does the scripture say about Christ? He who knew no sin. He was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin. So if anyone would have the right to condemn us, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, God has committed all judgment to the Son, according to John chapter 5. And it says there, God has committed all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. Check it out. And I used to puzzle over that because I thought, well, you'd think he would have all judgment committed to him because he's the son of God, right? And as God, he would have the right to judge. But you see, the reason all judgment has been turned over to the Lord Jesus Christ is not because he's God. Yes, he is God, but because he's the son of man. Because he has lived here on earth as a human being and has successfully lived without sin. And guess what? That gives him the right to judge you and me. And that also, here's a sidelight, this will be no charge for this, is that we don't have the right to judge each other. You know why? Because we're guilty of the same stuff. Maybe worse than you, right? And so we don't have that right. But Christ has the right. And that's why He's asking the question the way he is. Who is he that condemneth? Christ? And what does he say Christ did? Christ that died? Well, what does that mean? Christ died for our sins. He paid the price. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and he says, yea, rather, that is risen again. He's just given us the essence here of the gospel. He died and he rose again. And that enough would tell us that he's not in the business of condemning us once we've trusted him. Why? Because 
he has already paid the price. But then he adds to that, he's not only risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Look at that courtroom scene in your mind once more. Here you are as a believer, the accuser of the brethren, probably throwing all kinds of accusations at you. Some of them are probably valid. You probably have sinned. Now, I hate to even ask you this. How many of you have sinned a time or two since, since you're saved? A couple times, okay. So he's probably got some valid accusations, but guess what? How many of your sins were future when Christ died for them? All of them. And you know, there's a lot of Christians hung up on, well, yeah, I know I sinned in the past, but what about my sins from now on? Well, Christ paid for those too. Is that an excuse to sin? No. Paul says it a little stronger. God forbid, right? <laughs> How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? But the point being, Christ is, has not only died for our sins, he's not only risen again, he's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. So as those accusations come in, and hey, look what Brother Joel did, Christ steps in and says, yes, I know. I paid for that one. <laughs> I've got it covered. Making, yes, thank God, making intercession for us. So here's our scene. Here we are standing before the judge of the universe. The judge is on our side. <laughs> and Christ is our defense attorney. How do you think it's going to turn out? Well, he's going to tell us here, but I think you already know. Wow. For the believer, there's no valid accusation. For the believer, there is no condemnation. All right, the next conclusion Paul comes to in verses 35 through 39 is that for the believer, there is no separation. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And again, that's a good question. In the light of what he's already told us, what, what jailer would dare step into this courtroom now, put us in shackles, and carry us away? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to list by way of question, some of the things that maybe seem to separate us at times. Shall tribulation. Now we know, as we rightly divide the word of truth, he's not talking about the great tribulation of the book of Revelation or of Matthew 24. He's not talking about going into the time of Jacob's trouble. How do we know that? First Thessalonians tells us we are not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not a part of that kingdom prophetic program. Praise God for that. But does that mean we don't face tribulation in this world? Oh, no, of course not. We know that Christians have faced tremendous tribulation and suffering throughout history. And if you don't believe that, just read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. 
Christians have suffered mercilessly at the hands of the world, at the hands of other so-called believers sometimes. But does that separate them from the love of Christ? Of course not. Distress. I don't know if you've ever been distressed, but have you ever been in a situation where you just absolutely don't know where to turn next? You just aren't sure how you're going to make it another day. I hope you're not in that situation, but perhaps some of you have been there. And perhaps you've wondered what you're going to do. And have you ever wondered, where's God? Well, you know, I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. Where's God? You feel separated. And he's asking, does that separate you? Well, of course not. How about persecution? And you know, there was a, <laughs> a day when I said many times, you know, we don't face the kind of persecution in our country that other people face. Well, the times there are changing, aren't they? Starting to see more and more physical persecution and even martyrdom in our, even in our great land. But still nothing like is going on in other parts of the world. There is tremendous persecution. Does that separate you from the love of Christ? Of course not. Or famine. Now most of us don't look like we've missed too many meals. Thankfully, you know. And again, it's great, isn't it? To live in a land where there's, there's plenty of food. Um, I know I hear the ads and I, I, I feel badly for those who don't have enough food. Um, but in, I hear the ad almost every day. In South Dakota, one out of nine children faces hunger or something. And I'm going, what? Where are they? I don't know where they are. But they claim that they're, they're out there somewhere. Um, does that separate? No. Nakedness. I'm glad to see you're all dressed. But have you ever been in a situation, you know, you don't have enough clothes to wear. Does that separate you from, no, that doesn't separate you from the love of God. Or peril. Ever been in a really, really tough spot where your life could be in danger? Or sword. Does that separate, no. And then before really answering, he brings up an interesting illustration in verse 36 as it is written for thy sake we are killed all the day long we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter Paul's quoting the Old Testament here referring to those prophets of old who were constantly in danger of their lives you know, being a prophet was not for the, <laughs> the faint of heart. <laughs> um, the prophets were often persecuted because they were exposing the evil of their day. And no one likes to have their evil exposed. And so they were often in danger of being killed and persecuted. And the whole point that he's making here is if you ever find yourself in these situations where you're facing tremendous persecution for the name of Christ, you're in good company. You're in the company of the prophets who faced similar things. The book of Hebrews goes on to describe them. They were sawn asunder and that's believed to be Isaiah who according to tradition hid in a hollow tree and the king ordered that tree to be cut down with him in it, sawn asunder. 
you're in good company. For thy sake we're killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, his conclusion, verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In all these things. Now, I love this for one particular reason. The words more than conquerors come from a sort of a compound word in the original text. And it's based on the root word that John uses over in the book of Revelation when he talks about those that overcome. When he's writing to the seven churches, which I, I believe are future churches that will exist during the tribulation period. And he says those that overcome will be given a white stone or given access to the tree of life and so forth. Over and over he says, those that overcome, those that overcome. And, and he's talking there about the tribulation believers who will literally be running for their lives as they refuse the mark of the beast on their right hand and forehead and the Antichrist is trying to hunt them down. And if they overcome and remain true to the Lord, they'll be given these various rewards. Well, that root word is found in this phrase, more than conquerors. But Paul puts the prefix in front of it, hyper. You ever been called a hyper or anything? No, we're not talking about that. <laughs> the, we're hyper overcomers, he said. We're, a better word would be super. We're super overcomers. Not only have we become overcomers through Christ in this dispensation, we're super overcomers. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And again, how can, how can he say such things? Well, because of what he's already said back in verse 30. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You say, what, who, me? Are you glorified yet? Have you looked in the mirror lately? Well, in God's mind, he's so sure that he's going to bring you to glory that he can say it as though it's already done. He's already done it in his mind. We're already glorified in that sense. Now, we're not glorified in this body yet, but this body will be changed. It's as sure as the word of God. That's why he can say we're super overcomers through him that loved us. And then he enumerates some other things that may make us wonder sometimes if we're going to make it. For I am persuaded that neither death. The true believer, especially if they're walking with the Lord, does not fear death. Now, we're not looking forward to dying, I don't suppose, generally speaking. But we don't fear death when we realize that we are going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now we talked about this morning. Paul said it's far better. Far better. Death will not separate us from the love of God. But how about life? You know sometimes life can seem worse than death. The things you might be going through. Does that separate? No. Nor angels. You see, angels are created beings of God. They're nowhere close. Man is made a little lower than the angels. But Christ 
is seated far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. There's no comparison between angels and God. And then he says, nor principalities, nor powers. We often think of those as fallen angels, and it can include them. But any governmental authority, Paul says, those can't separate you, nor things present. Yeah, are there things going on that make you feel maybe God's abandoned me? Sometimes we might feel that way. Nor things to come. Nothing can happen in the future. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. I love the way that God anticipates what we're probably going to think. And there are those who teach that while none of these outward forces could ever take us away from the love of God, we just might choose on our own accord to turn away from the Lord. And some teach that you can lose your salvation by turning away from the Lord after you've trusted Christ. Well, you know, God covered even that situation, didn't he here? He said, nor any other creature, created thing. Now, let me ask you, are you a created thing? Yeah. You can't even get out of salvation once you've trusted Christ. If he has to, God will drag you kicking and screaming into heaven. Now, I don't think you're going to be kicking or screaming by the time you get to heaven. But if you know the Lord, that's how sure it is. And I often think of, when I read this verse, I think of an illustration I learned way back in Sunday school, and this was before I learned the grace message, but my Sunday school teacher was not a grace believer, but understood this principle. And she was a lady, a dear old lady, who was a, a missionary in India. She served four terms in India. Now that may not seem like a long time, but back then you served for seven or eight years at a time. Because you got on a slow boat to get there and you didn't just come home every, you know, every other year uh, on an airplane. And uh, her name was Hulda. And uh, she was one of those, uh, those dear saints that when she prayed, you just felt God was listening to her. <laughs> and she would, we were talking in Sunday school about Abba Father, that expression. And she would often say that, Abba Father. She'd like, she'd like to address God that way. But she used to say this in Sunday school class. She would say, you know, there are some people that think that when God reaches down to pick us up, that we can jump back out of his hand. And she said, that's not right. Because in Christ, we're part of his hand. You know what? That never left me. <laughs> and to this day, I, I can still say amen. We're not going to jump out of his hand. We can't. We are part of his hand. We are the body of Christ. And that's why no creature, even including yourself, could ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to close with a passage over in Ephesians that I love, and I'm sure you know. Um, and I have to tell you, don't want don't to embarrass him. I'm not talking about the pastor. I'm talking about the dear man who prayed at the offering and prayed for me. And he said, 
even though we probably already have heard it or already know it. And you know, when I was in my first, actually my first Grace Church, uh, Colorado, followed Pastor Owsley, I was preaching the gospel one morning and I was going through a very simple presentation of the gospel and I was kind of apologizing and I was saying, well, I know you've heard all this before and we're just going to go through the gospel. And after the sermon, uh, Ruth Laburn, you remember Ruth Laburn, came up to me and kind of kind of scolded me a little bit. She said, Pastor Joel, don't apologize for going over these basic truths. We love to hear them over and over again. <laughs> and I, you know, I've never forgotten that. Um, I love to tell the story, you know. <laughs> and uh, when, how's that song go? When we're, uh, we sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story I have loved so long. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to sing the same thing. All right. Ephesians chapter 1. Here it is. Starting in verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ in whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, and that's, that's not subsequent to believing, that's a, an aorist point action, that's bang, the moment you believed, that's what it's talking about, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment God has placed. You know, when God places a down payment, you can be sure he's going to make good on the entire thing. And that's why he says, the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Our salvation once, he says, once you've trusted Christ, again in verse 13, in whom ye also trusted, literally upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The seal of the Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. What does it mean to seal something? Have you ever gone and looked at your, uh, your electric meter and there's a little wire and a piece of lead crimped on it? You know what that is? That's a seal. Because if you break that and go in and try, I know they're all electronic nowadays, but if you went in and tried to turn back the numbers on your electric meter and you broke that seal, nothing's going to happen, right? Now, somebody, you're going to be in trouble, buddy. Do you think anyone can tamper with our salvation? Not only is it authorized by the God of heaven, the Holy Spirit is the seal. You're not going to tear the Holy Spirit off of our salvation trying to get to us. It's not going to, you can try, but it's not going to be successful. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What's the purchased possession? We are. Christ bought us. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify him in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Unto the praise, and I love this, of his glory. 
You know, salvation doesn't result in, oh, look what I did. No, it all points, look what he did. So at the end of the day, at the end of this trial in heaven's court, what is the conclusion? Justified, declared righteous, you're saved by faith in Christ. Let's bow our heads, shall we? If you've never trusted Christ, don't wait another moment. Believe the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, which Paul defines so clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day. Have you put your trust in what he did for your salvation? Do so today and be saved. Father, thank you that your son did what we could never do. Thank you that he perfectly satisfied your righteous wrath upon sin. Thank you that he paid in full that purchase and now possesses us. Thank you, Lord, that by faith we can come into that relationship. Thank you for these dear folks, uh, for Brother Rick. And thank you for the wonderful fellowship that we always enjoy here. And we look forward to that wonderful day when you call us all and catch us away to be with the Lord forever. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.